0: Welcome, everyone. This is Jeff Cohn with the Wall Street Resource. Joining me is Ben Wolf. He's the CEO of Sarcos Robotics. Good morning,
1: Ben. Good morning, Jeff. How are you? Good.
0: So, Ben, uh, before we get started with the business, um, can you tell us a little bit about the transaction for Sarcos going public?
1: Sure. Uh, so, we announced uh, a number of weeks ago that Sarcos Robotics will merge with Rotor Acquisition Corp. Uh, which is uh, currently traded on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol ROT. Uh, And Rotor is a special purpose acquisition company that uh, raised about $275 million uh, in an oversubscribed uh, IPO uh, at the very beginning part of this year. And they had publicly stated that they were looking to merge with or acquire um an industrial focused uh technology company that was highly disruptive in nature and so uh, they found us uh came to us and and uh, uh you know we we were able to strike a deal that was uh, very beneficial for both parties okay
0: and this was a, a good way for you guys to go public
1: yeah. I mean, it, you know, certainly uh, merging with a SPAC that is already public uh, shortcuts the IPO process. It allows us to tell our story in a way that we wouldn't necessarily be able to do if we were doing a traditional IPO, and it gives us a little more certainty uh, in, in a number of respects about completion of the transaction and the capital that we'll raise and the valuation. So um, I have taken a company public in the past through the more traditional route, uh, and this will be my first time to be the CEO of a company going through, through uh, the SPAC process, but um, certainly have done, done the more traditional route, and so far I'm, I'm enjoying the way this process is going.
0: Very good. So now for the business. Can you give us just a quick overview of the company?
1: Sure. Uh, we are an industrial robotics company. Uh, we've actually been around uh, working on robotics for several decades, uh, and our, our focus is a little different than most robotics companies. We're focused on industrial robotics, for those jobs and tasks that cannot be automated because they're not repetitious by nature. Um, So robots historically have done a great job of doing tasks that are repetitive, where the machine can do the job better, faster, and cheaper than humans can do them. Uh, But there are hundreds of millions of jobs around the world that defy automation because they are dynamic in nature, the environments are unstructured. So think of a construction site, for example, Uh, or think about um, a logistics application where uh, everything being moved and shuttled around is different uh, with each task. Uh, So we are focused on robotic systems that augment human workers to make them uh, stronger and have more endurance and to be safer Uh, so that the humans continue to do the jobs leveraging the best of human intelligence with the strength and endurance and precision of robotic machines.
0: So what's the market opportunity here for your addressable market?
1: Well, we talk about the addressable market in the U.S. alone, um, representing about 16.6 million workers in the U.S. That's a TAM of about $147 billion today. And again, that's only in the U.S. and just in the sectors that we're focused on, excluding the defense sector, where we think we will have a significant opportunity. So it is an incredibly large market. Uh, it spans everything from construction to warehousing and logistics and manufacturing. Uh, you know, The list goes on. And and so it is a massive camp.
0: And and then in terms of the competitive environment, uh, what does it look like, and how do you fit in?
1: You know, there are there are no other companies that are bringing to market a commercial product like ours. So we don't really see competition in the robotics space. What we've got is is very unique and novel. I would say that the closest thing to competition that there is are other more traditional ways of getting a job done, like using forklifts or pallet jacks or overhead cranes, um, or, or just plain old human workers. Uh, and, and so we're in a very unique spot. I, frankly, in my entire uh, you know entrepreneurial career and investing career, have never seen an opportunity like this, where the TAM is so large and there's so little in the way of direct competition.
0: So, what would you say your company's biggest strength or, or core competency is?
1: It's really in the technology development. Um, we have uh, developed some proprietary technologies that allow our robotic systems to work in a way that nobody else in the world has been able to do. We have developed a significant body of intellectual property around that technology that we've developed over the last several decades. Um, We had the good fortune of having DARPA and other parts of the Defense Department fund us from a very early uh, beginning stage, and we were able to leverage that capital to develop this very large intellectual property portfolio. So today we have more than 140 patents uh, that have been issued to us around the world. We have uh, dozens more that are in process, and I'd say it's really the ability to create these machines that truly are intuitive to use and augment humans in a very safe way that uh, that nobody else has been able to do before. So, so I'd say our, our real strength is in the technology development.
0: Okay. And, and where are you with this in terms of uh, development?
1: So we have been, as, as I said, at it for a couple of decades now. Uh, we're finally at the point – that the cost and performance of components has gotten to the point that this is commercially viable. So we produced our first alpha versions of our, um, of our units after you know, years of prototyping. We created our first alpha units in late 2019, got them out in the field, uh, and introduced them to the world in early 2020. Uh, some, some of your listeners may have seen us at the Consumer Electronics Show in January of 2020 on stage with the CEO of Delta Airlines, uh, where Ed Bastian uh, introduced our exoskeleton as part of the workforce of the future for Delta Airlines. Uh, So we did some early testing with those alpha units. COVID hit, and that slowed down our testing, unfortunately, because everybody closed down their facilities. But we took all of the learnings from those alpha units, and we're now in the process of manufacturing our first beta units. We'll have the beta version um, available for our internal testing later this summer, and then we expect to get our first beta units into customers' hands for pilots by the end of this year. And then we'll take the learnings from the beta units, and start ramping up commercial production in the second half of next year.
0: Okay, and then what's the low-hanging fruit in terms of end markets?
1: You know, there are there are so many jobs where people are being asked to do physically demanding work, and yet these are the same jobs where young people don't really want to go into these physically demanding jobs, um, and so we see tremendous labor shortages. Uh, Deloitte recently came out with a, a, a new study that indicated that by 2030, we will be short by 2.1 million workers in manufacturing in the U.S. alone. And um, that's going to create more than a trillion-dollar negative impact to our economy. And that's being driven by a number of factors, but most importantly, young people just don't want to go into these physically demanding jobs. So when I take a look at the manufacturing sector, and whether it's manufacturing airplanes or automobiles or heavy equipment, Um, Or, you know, you you name it. Um, All different types of manufacturing can benefit from our machines where we can allow a single human to get into our wearable robot. They can start doing the work of three, four or five humans, meaning they can lift up to 200 pounds and manipulate it the way humans normally manipulate objects and do it safely. So our target is to significantly reduce the risk of injury while also enhancing productivity and trying to make up for the significant labor shortage that is not going to go away anytime soon.
0: Okay. Is there a learning curve to to using the robot?
1: It's it's very intuitive to use. So you could get into it having no training at all, and within a matter of a couple of minutes – start moving, walking, uh, picking things up, and it just feels intuitive to use. You asked about you know, what, what, are, what are some of the things that we are most proud of, and that is one of those things, this intuitive nature of the machine so that it just feels like a natural extension of the human body. Um, that's what we're all about. Now, there is some training that is involved, and it's primarily – the kind of training you would expect a forklift driver to get in terms of becoming aware of the surroundings, um, making sure you understand how, how to have situational awareness because we're giving you superhuman strength, and you want to make sure that you don't damage anything or anybody around you. So there is uh, about a day's worth of training to understand what your new capacities are and capabilities are, but in terms of just using the machine, boy, it's, it's incredibly intuitive to use.
0: Okay. And then customers that you'll be targeting initially, and will those just be in the U.S.?
1: So our initial focus is in the U.S., and we have announced um, partnerships with companies like Delta Airlines, Caterpillar, uh, GE, uh, Schlumberger in the oil and gas field, Bechtel in construction. Uh, We've been so fortunate to start working with these companies uh, several years ago And we worked with them in collaboration to define the product requirements and specifications so that when the products come to market, we know that they're well geared towards meeting that company's and that industry's requirements. Um, So we've we've been incredibly fortunate uh, to work with a number of these big Fortune 100 and 500 companies. We also have announced a number of relationships with the U.S. military. So we have uh, the Air Force and the Marine Corps and the U.S. Navy that are customers. Okay.
0: Uh, Can you give us some anecdotal evidence that the market's ready for this?
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, we we talk with um, some of the companies I just mentioned and others, and they all are so focused on the fact that they're not able to attract enough talent. And it starts looking like an existential threat in the future if this trend continues. Um, So they're looking for ways to expand the labor pool And some of these jobs that we're tackling, you kind of had to previously be built like a college linebacker, football linebacker, to be able to get the job done. And now we're able to take people of all shapes and sizes, all ages, uh, and allow them to do this physically demanding work. So it opens the aperture on who can do these jobs. We call it a workforce equalizer. Uh, And that has so much receptivity across all of these different industries. So when we talk to some of these companies here, they're talking about not just a dozen or two dozen of these machines, but some of these larger companies, they talk to us about needing thousands of units. So I guess there's, there's the anecdotal information. Um, several of them say if you had the product available today, we would be taking thousands of
0: them. Nice. So how are you going to reach these customers? Through what channels? Are you going to be selling them yourself?
1: Yeah, so we will sell direct in the U.S., and again, that is our initial focus. But then for international markets, I think you, know, you, you, you can expect to see us over the next couple of years look at some of the key markets around the world that are industrialized nations where they're experiencing the same kind of labor shortages, aging of the workforce, and high wages is kind of typically the combination. So when you look at markets like Japan and Korea, uh, Western Europe, we will expect to expand into those markets there. We will probably do it through partnerships uh, and, and, and establish distribution channels rather than selling direct.
0: Okay. And in terms of manufacturing, is that something you're going to do yourself? Uh, Does it scale? Uh, What kind of capacity do you have?
1: So we do low-volume manufacturing ourselves, and I think we will continue to do that. But we are very focused on um, inking a deal with a large contract manufacturer, a global contract manufacturer. Uh, We've been in negotiations with a handful of them and we will select one in the in, in not-too-distant future. Uh, and they, each of the ones that we're talking to have the capacity to be able to make tens of thousands of units over the next uh, X number of years. Uh, so all of the production capacity that we need, we can outsource to these contract manufacturers. They are very skilled at being able to assemble complex electromechanical subsystems like uh, our products are, are, are reliant on. So we think that this will be a good fit. It's what we call an asset-like business model. We don't have to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in our own factory. We can leverage the infrastructure team and supply chain from uh, a contract manufacturer.
0: Okay. And then will the robots um, need to be customized, or are they good to go?
1: There is virtually no customization required from industry to industry, or company to company. And that's another thing that's very unique about our product as opposed to most of the other robotic systems that are out there. Because we're relying on human intelligence to do the job, um, we don't have to customize it for each individual work environment or location. So we can literally drop the machine uh, at a, a customer's facility, uh, and train them, and they're off to the races and start start you know doing the job. Uh, these machines are virtually as flexible as humans are, uh, and so it is it is uh, very rewarding to be able to have designed a product from the ground up that is applicable across all of these different industries and companies without customization being required.
0: Okay, so so Ben, how do we make money? What's the revenue model look like?
1: So we offer our our, our two core products, our flagship products, in a a robot-as-a-service offering. We say to our customers, think of us as a next-generation labor contractor. We're providing you with units of labor. Put it on your your, uh, payroll just like you would a human worker. We'll service it and maintain it and ensure that it stays up and operating for you. Sign a one, two, or three-year contract with us. The longer the term of the contract, the lower the cost. The more number of units you have, the lower the cost per unit. Um, and it shows up every day for work and does its job just like a human would. Uh, the co- the cost for the system, uh, for the exoskeleton, the wearable robot, is roughly equivalent to the fully burdened cost of a $25 an hour worker in the U.S. And When I say fully burdened, I mean including G&A and overhead and you know, all of the different elements that are both direct and indirect costs associated with having an employee. So for the cost of one fully burdened full-time employee – you're getting the productivity, in many cases, of three, four, five, or more employees.
0: Okay. And to be clear, you're not supplying the employee that wears the robot as well.
1: That's correct. We're just supplying the robot, so it becomes the partner. It becomes the work partner of one of our customer's existing employees.
0: Gotcha. And then what kind of – how do we look at it in terms of gross margins?
1: Well, the gross margins are fairly significant because we keep the machines on our, pay, I mean, on, on our balance sheet. So we're paying to build the fleet. We keep it on our balance sheet. We maintain it. We do certainly have the, the, kind of the, the, the amortization expense associated with that or the depreciation expense associated with the machine while it's on our balance sheet. But as a result, because we're charging roughly $100,000 a year for one of these machines and at scale – We're expecting our fully burdened cost to build the machine, service it, deploy it, keep it out in the field for a six-year useful life. We're looking at only about $175,000 in total cost, both the CapEx and the OpEx for us, and yet that machine is generating $600,000 in total lifetime revenue over its six-year useful life. So the the margins in this business are are fairly significant. Very good. So do you have all
0: the pieces you need, or or what's uh, the acquisition strategy, if any?
1: We have all the pieces we need for our core product offerings. Um, we think that there are some potential acquisition uh, or m and opportunities in, in our broadly defined robotic space, meaning not focusing on robotic, robotic systems that are automated or autonomous in nature, but those that truly augment humans and work in unstructured environments. So I think as we, as we get our merger with Rotor completed, uh, if we if we wind up with all the capital that we hope and expect, um, certainly acquisitions are uh, could be a significant part of our future opportunity as we see other companies in similar stages to us where we think by combining our sales and marketing and distribution efforts and perhaps even our manufacturing efforts with our contract manufacturer, we might be able to address even greater opportunities in the marketplace with our industrial customers.
0: Okay. And in terms of gating factor, are there some... Techno- technological challenges to bring your product to market, or, or what are some of the gating factors?
1: I, I think it's really about moving from the alpha and beta stage into ramping up commercial production, uh, making sure that we are doing our design for manufacture, design for serviceability, right, uh, getting our value engineering done so that we can bring down the cost per unit. Um, I'd say it's, you know, th- th- there's really not a lot on the technology front that is in any way a showstopper from my perspective. I think the showstoppers we've overcome, and they're behind us. Uh, there continues to be evolution to make sure that the machine works uh, as smoothly as we expect and meets our customers' expectations about robustness and ruggedness and all of that. But these are not technology showstoppers. Uh, so the, you know, I couldn't have said the same thing two or three years ago when we, were still, uh, we still had some of those showstoppers to overcome. We did it, and we're extremely happy with where the product is today.
0: Okay. And the flip side of that, the, the key drivers for your business.
1: Uh, again getting the getting getting ready for manufacturing uh, getting the the product to a true commercialized state, getting it out in the field, getting our customers to pilot it and then turning them into lighthouse customers so that they really become advocates and spokespeople for us. Uh, We've been fortunate to partner with some leaders, technology leaders across their various respective industries. And what we expect to happen will be that you know once you have a, well, just this is when Delta Airlines announced their partnership with us. We got calls from a number of other global airlines inquiring about what we were doing with Delta. I think we'll see that same thing happen across these various industries. But that's, you know, obviously once you're moving into the commercialization phase, it's about getting the product out the door, uh, making your customers ha- happy and delighted, and then servicing them and uh, you know growing the sales and distribution effort, which is is a key area of focus for us as we get the merger done. We've not, by, by definition, needed a significant sales and marketing and, and distribution effort until our core products are, are ready to go out the door, and so we'll be ramping up our efforts in that regard.
0: Okay. As we look uh, over the next 12 months, uh, what are some of the uh, events, milestones, and Catalyst to watch for. Uh,
1: getting the getting the beta units uh, done and out the door, uh, showing that they uh, work as advertised. I think that's one of the the, the key things. I think looking for uh, further proof of customer engagement and interest uh, with uh, new partnerships, new customer contracts, whether it's commercial side or on the military side, uh, and then uh, you know hitting hitting that deadline of of getting the the first commercial products rolling off the line and and, uh, into customers' hands in the second half of next year.
0: And and so the the beta, uh, when should we see that?
1: We expect to have the first beta assembled and testing commenced uh, late summer of this year, and then some limited number, kind of single-digit number of betas in customers' hands in December of this year.
0: Okay. Anything I uh, failed to ask you that you want to leave us with?
1: I think, I think just you know, really underscoring the idea that this is a different type of robotic system that is not dependent on advanced artificial intelligence. You know, is not dependent on some great new technology that has yet to be invented. Uh, this is this is a tool that will be used by industries and the workforce worldwide to completely change the game, to enhance safety, reduce worker injuries, and increase productivity. And it couldn't be coming at a better time. I mean, on the heels of COVID where we've learned what the constraints are of having people work in close proximity with one another and kind of the devastating effect that a shutdown uh, where people have to be socially distanced can have, I think it's really highlighted the need for solutions like ours. We -hmm. will supplement and augment all of the automation that's being done out there. Everything that can be automated will, but once that's done – then there's going to be a question about what about all the things that can't be automated. And that's where we are uniquely positioned as kind of a, a, you know, a, one, one of the few, one of the only pure play robotics companies that the public can invest in. Um, I think that's a, that's a theme worth latching onto.
0: Very interesting. Well, Ben, thank you so much for sharing the Sarco's robotic story.
1: Great. Thanks for having me.